mate, I'm very well, thank you. Excellent. Um, yeah. <laughs> I feel like I was lying <laughs> a little bit. Uh, no, you but no, sound like you were. Uh, I was trying to um, do that to sound very positive, and I am positive. I'm, it's tiring at the moment, as we were just speaking about. So hopefully that's not a negative way to start a podcast. It's not meant to be, but I would imagine many people out there in the world of uh, hospitality are feeling that way. Um, but it's good. It's all heading in the right direction. How are you going? Yeah, uh, it, it's definitely, you know, you're alive at this point in time. I mean, it's. Uh, I think everyone's in that mode of trying to get things done before the end of the year, which is not alarmingly too far away. And so, yeah, it's if it's in the timeout world, it's advertisers trying to do their thing before Christmas. If it's in the nighttime industries world, it's all about trying to get the um, like improved trading conditions for for venues and the government in New South Wales. Thankfully, at least is seeing uh, seeing the benefit of that and loosening restrictions as you speak today's announcement is i think bookings of up to 30 people which is a big boost i think really coming into the season and no doubt yeah. if, if that's managed they'll increase that you would have thought um because i think 50 is around about the right number uh if you know there's no outbreaks and so on so yeah um very uh interesting and busy times so and and melbourne of course it's uh uh, a pathway out of lockdown seems almost within grasp. Um, no hospitality, not yet trading, but hopefully when this podcast comes out, <laughs> so it will be. Yeah, mate, fingers crossed. I mean, everyone uh, that we're speaking to down there feels uh, a lot more positive than they did this time last week. It's obviously nice to have a date to work towards. And yeah, mate, you got to feel, I feel for them, but um there's light at the end of the tunnel, that is for sure. It'll be a nice feeling for them, I imagine, once they're serving their first meal or um, beer over a bar or whatever it might be with their customers that come in. Uh, I bet they can't wait. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that hopefully their uh, flexibility of trading is better than it was in Sydney when they when we reopened. Um, but let's see. Uh, they've... I've been watching some of the stuff that's been going up there, up here, and it's been factored into into government thinking. Anyway, uh, today's guest is Mark Calabro, co-founder of Hungry Hungry. Nice. And, um, mate, what are we going to speak with him about? Well, Luke, like uh, many things the pandemic has done, I think uh, change in use of technology generally uh, and innovation uh, as a result and there's a number of businesses I think that have uh, been accelerated through the pandemic particularly as uh, habits have changed and uh, people wanted to go contactless uh, um, pivoting into uh, takeaway and pickup models for technology Uh, so and, and of course I suppose in the background is this wider narrative around uh, the viability in the long term of the Uber Eats and Deliveroo um, uh, businesses and, and the extent to which they they take a slice of the action. And and I guess like uh, Hungry Hungry is one of a number of businesses that has, uh, I guess, been accelerated in the pandemic and uh, starting to, I wouldn't necessarily say even out the playing field, but at least providing an alternative uh, um, solution to, to venues. So, I was kind of keen to chat to Mark because uh, we haven't had anyone from a technology bent on the podcast um, before that I can recall. And um, yeah, 
now seems like the time. Yeah, nice. All right, look forward to it. Well, welcome, Mark Calabro, to the Back of House podcast. We've been rescheduling and rescheduling, uh, which is often the way with the pandemic. I think you make plans and things change. But how are you? Yeah, I'm I'm well, all considering. I'm, um, I think like a lot of Melbournians, just hoping that we are on the home stretch right now and living in some hope. Yeah, it's... Uh, from from the Sydney perspective, it's uh, we're, we're we've had a number of days of no community transmission, and then uh, that that ten day stretch was just uh, came to an end, which uh, you know is cause for reflection. I think what we can only do is hope that we can uh, get that um, back under control and uh, and keep going on on what was otherwise a relatively positive um, process the last few few weeks. It's been uh, interesting, Luke, hasn't it? With uh, uh, operators and how they've been trading and just seeing a gentle gentle increase in in Sydney which I guess if you're looking at it from a Melbourne perspective thinking how will things go um if, we, if you can get it right um mm. interesting. yeah I, I think um I can't remember we spoke about this last time but the uh the really interesting thing we've seen over the last week or two which has been great and Mark for you I think uh you know would probably be of interest and, and a lot of your clients in Melbourne and ours um CBDs are actually probably providing the highest levels of positivity in in Sydney anyway, um, which is great. A lot of clients are reporting that they've had their best weeks in a very very long time since well since before the pandemic um, in CBD locations, which everyone was expecting to take a lot longer to come back. But you know who knows what the three cases that were identified yesterday will uh, will do to that confidence. But um, hopefully that continues. Um, so Mark, we'll. Uh get into the guts of this podcast and we haven't had a guest uh, that comes from your background uh, specifically on this, even though we've done 20 something episodes, uh, which probably suggests that Luke and I fall into the category of Luddite. But uh, you've been working in, I guess, the technology aspects of hospitality, I think it's fair to say for, well, since the turn of the century. And uh, it'd be good to get help us understand what attracted you to I guess, the, the sector generally and, and then playing the specific role you have, um, I guess, across the automate business and now Hungry Hungry. Yeah, and, gee, when you say the turn of the century, I feel, feel old all of a sudden. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is almost 20 years ago now, I think. Um, and looking back, um, I think it's the my, my two loves having come together and that is my love for food and my love for technology. Um, you know, for me, a uh, few Food is just not fuel. I know for a lot of people they kind of just um, they eat to live, whereas I know for, for a lot of my family and friends we really live to eat. And it's really what food represents um, in our lives and in my life. Um, you know, thinking back as a child, my fondest memories I have are with, with my grandmother as a young child, the smell of coffee in the darkness of the morning whilst, you know, uh, her making pasta and gnocchi from scratch or picking fennel with her in the garden on a cold winter morning. There's something very magical um, around food and, um, and, what it, and what it represents. Um, and, you know, we talk, uh, we talk a lot about, you know, experiences, um, whether it's, you know, travel or sports or culture, and front and centre of that is, is, is really the food. So, um, so for me it was, it was great to be able to combine two things that I'm very, very passionate about. 
And do you want to just give us a sense of uh, your, your journey with the um, Automate and then into Hungry Hungry? Yeah, yeah. So Automate, I mean, we started that out of literally it was a garage for the first couple of years um, just out of uni- university and, you know, we were studying uh, engineering um, and applied science and a lot of it was around multimedia and back then was called human-computer interaction, which a much more cooler name for that is customer experience. Um, and for us, it was uh, we developed a product that at the time was was very new. Um, point of style was still very kind of cash register and those ROM-based, terminal-based. So we what we fell in love with was the way that we could simplify the complex. And I think that for Automate, one of its claim to fame and what we're really well known for is the simplicity of being able to put a first-time staff member in front of a point-of-sale screen and just be able to use it uh, instantly without having to go through complex training. My um, my business partner's just uh, arrived with his oh, okay. dog, which is a greyhound, and it's just <laughs> gone bonkers up and down the office. All right. As long as it uh, you know, doesn't come back. Let me, can I just go out and... Yeah, yeah, sure. It's like, it's like a, a horse, this dog. Yeah. <laughs> Is it a racing one? It was, it was, yeah, it was raced for three years and um, it was, he's bought, you know how like they set up for those greyhounds to find a home after they've been racing? Yeah. Mm. So um, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful specimen, but... Bloody big. That's fast. <laughs> I was driving past the dogs in Sydney last night. They're back in action um, at the stadium. So, anyway. Um, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Automate, we started in 2003, and it was it was something that was very new and innovative at the time. Um, the industry was still largely using cash registers. Uh, technology wasn't really a thing in any restaurant, cafe, or bar. Um, so we developed something that was really on the, on the back of our skill set and what we learned at university around human computer interaction, multimedia. Um, my two partners were from a software background and we created something that was, was very unique at the time. Um, and, and it took off quite quickly. It was a, you know, a software based point of sale system that was really about the customer experience, which really is for the, the staff member in the restaurant to be able to, you know, process orders. Um, so so that, that was a business that we, we grew uh, literally brick by brick. Um, we didn't go out to seek investment for that. Um, we, we established a really strong footprint around Melbourne and Sydney and then kind of into New Zealand and the UAE. We had a reseller over there. And we had, you know, lots of learning lessons um, throughout that time. Um, but we really saw the industry grow into what it is today. I feel that those 2000s is, was an era, certainly here in Melbourne, but also in Sydney, which put, um, I'll keep referring to it as Melbourne, uh, on the world stage as a global food city. And that was by no, by no accident. Um, there, was a lot of, there was a lot of people who are still around to this day um, who really, I think, pushed for greatness and 
And I think that it was largely supported by, by government uh, and people um, to create that environment where, you know, arts, culture, food, vibrancy, events um, mushroomed out this amazing global uh, food scene uh, here in Melbourne. So we, we kind of uh, helped drive that in the background with, with the technology. Um, and it was probably in the last more five years that we saw, you know, and there was great, some great innovations through that time from rostering systems and accounting systems and so on. But what we started seeing in sort of the, the 15, 16, 17 was kind of a, a very big disruption which had already taken place in a lot of other industries. So whether it was travel, accommodation, where a lot of these big global aggregators had come in and had kind of pinched that relationship away from the business owner and the actual consumer. And we saw that happening very quickly in hospitality and we didn't like it. We saw it was doing to a lot of great operators, how, you know, under the guise of uh, more sales, underneath it was really... Uh, less profitability. Um, and the disruption really was around, you know, taking the customer away from the small business owner um, and bringing it over onto an aggregator platform. Um, and I will say, like, uh, these, uh, the likes of Uber Eats, they've come into the market and, and they've solved a, you know, very big problem. Um, but it was really coming from a place of building out a technology that was really about the sustainability of the industry um, so there was a win for the consumers and a win for business owners. And we thought that if we can strike that balance with the technology that we'd started creating in Hungry Hungry, that we're on the right path. Yeah, that's great. I mean, like this guy from multiple tangents, but one of the observations uh, listening to you speak is what happens when government uh, create an environment uh, and put something as part of their strategy and then businesses within an ecosystem can benefit from that and you, without starting a turf war across these two great cities that we uh, are speaking from, uh, the thing that people are excited about up here at the moment is uh, the government's released a new strategy for what they're calling 24-hour economy, but really it's like uh, trying to, uh, you know, I guess they won't, I wouldn't put it this way, but it follows in the footsteps of Melbourne, in, in a sense, uh, Melbourne, Victoria, you know, back in those, in, in 2000, you know, making it part of, essential to the to an economic growth strategy for a city, does wonderful things for um, businesses that, that uh, sit within it. And one question I was uh, dying to ask is, um, as an outside observer who isn't as engaged with uh, the day-to-day operations of hospitality, do you get a sense of the innovation split in the sector between, uh, you know, New South Wales and Victoria as a result. So when it comes to just the number of um, um, innovation plays in hospitality, technology specifically, uh, do they skew into Victoria or is it sort of 50-50 across the border? Um, That's an interesting one. I think... I'll start by first saying I think the rivalry there that's existed between Melbourne and Sydney for many years, I think it's a fantastic thing. I think it, it strives everyone for, for greatness um, and trying to find an, an edge. And you guys have certainly got an edge over us at the moment. Um, and it's, it's certainly an opportunity as, as, as well uh, for, for Sydney. Um, I think, I think it's, a, it's a very smart move. Um, 
it's funny because they're, they're, they're two very, very different cities. Um, and they're, you know, I think Melbourne's grew from we don't have those, the beaches and the outdoors. So everything in Melbourne happened in and around the city. Um, you know, events, sports, uh, drinking wine at, you know, two in the morning with a cigar. Um, so, yeah, I've always struggled to kind of really compare Melbourne and Sydney. Um, not that we need to, but they're just two very different cities and yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one to answer that. We will do some research and get back to you, I reckon. Like I, it just <laughs> strikes me that like a lot of the, uh, you know, the tech plays that we see sort of have come come out of Melbourne, which makes sense to me in, in this space, but could be wrong. Um, well, actually, I would say that probably previously, yeah. Um, I mean, if you have a look at just the, the, the point of sale, um, players, they've all come from Melbourne, Adelaide, and Queensland. So in those two, in the 1990s and 2000s, there wasn't one point of sale, I'm talking about of the major players, that was actually born out of Sydney. One thing that is consistent is that the pandemic seems to have accelerated trends that may have been at play in any case. And, uh, I'm no expert on technology, as we've already well established on this podcast. But the is is it is it fair to say that the pandemic um, has caused a generational leap, say um, in tech, and in, in particular for your business, Hungry Hungry? Would you say? Yeah, hundred uh, percent. It's I mean, we we saw. Uh, I, I looked to China when you know swine uh, flu came out, um, or was it the other one in two thousand and three. And there was an explosion of, of technology, um, and that that really stems from behavioural change. So I think we've we have we are living in ten years of change um, in the year of twenty twenty. Could we go back a step, perhaps, and just maybe for anyone who isn't familiar, um, just really clearly define what it is that your platform is doing current um, currently. Obviously, hungry, hungry. Um, how it's actually servicing the market right now. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, um, I mean, we, we've we only been around for 18 months um, mm. and we set out as an in-venue ordering platform and um, that kind of, we did that, that bit of a pivot, you could say, has <laughs> thrown around a lot, uh, in March mm. for out-of-venue ordering. So right. essentially, I mean, what Hungry Hungry is today is part of an evolution of, of where we're heading with it. Um, we are known as, a, as an ordering platform. So sure. that simply means as we we brand as as the restaurant. So the business owner gets to celebrate their brand. It's, it feels like a it feels like a uh, Francois experience uh, from home. Looks like it's a piece of technology that's been developed by the actual restaurant. Um, we facilitate the ordering with photos of the food. Um, yep. We've got a whole bunch of features in there that make it for a, a great experience. You could be ordering. Um, some Aperol spritzes at an event, uh, whatever it might be. And then the key to it for, for business owners is we actually then um, allow them to access that data. And that's, that's, the, that's the uniqueness of um, a product like Hungry Hungry as opposed to the global players where that's, that's hidden away. So we're really about um, giving the, the venues the ability to be able to surface their own on uh, their own menu and to be able to order from mm. it, either from their website, their Google My Business account, if you're out of the venue, or if you're inside the venue, um, it's driven by a little QR code uh, on the table right. somewhere. 
So it's a dissimilar platform to the other aggregators in that you are not scrolling through a series of restaurants, for example, looking for which one you might like to choose. You, you, you have essentially chosen where you'd like to order and you've gone directly to that platform for the specific menu, correct? Correct, correct. Yeah, cool. Yeah. All right. we, we, we do have um, uh, we've got some uh, solutions uh, in the works at the moment. Um, there's projects ready to open up in Melbourne that have been delayed and delayed where it also becomes a um, choose your food vendor. So it might be for a group of uh, food tenancies in a shopping precinct where right. we can actually allow them to be able to browse and soon we'll be able to do some smart things by listing the venues first that match um, what you like to eat or what your favourite price point is. So we're, we're about learning about what the consumer likes and enjoys doing and trying to create relevancy there between the user and really about what we talk to in our mission, and that is um, making every meal an, uh, an awesome meal. You know, uh, life's too short for, for bad meals, as, as we say. So it's about, you know, we talk about enhancing the customer experience. Well, it's being able to get, you know, what you want first time when you want it. And you know what? If you still want to talk to the staff, if you're in the venue, Go for it. And that also leaves staff more time to actually engage in more meaningful conversations because the ordering bit, we see that as just kind of, that's the bit, you know, that just needs to get done. And, and, and most people we know uh, would rather look at photos of the food as well and mm. maybe have it talked through by, um, by the waiter or, or the sommelier with the wines. It's interesting because I think... Um I mean, it's not new technology. It's not like the pandemic. And some people may believe this if they are not too, uh, I guess, closely aligned with the industry as a whole. But this technology was coming into its own pre-coronavirus. There were a number of businesses uh, and even large groups, I think, nationally that were adopting this technology um, purely, well, not maybe not purely, but um, obviously with the understanding that it would help reduce labour in some instances and maybe provide a higher level of service um, in the right environments. Uh, but obviously, as we just spoke about, the pandemic certainly um, it sped up the, 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 the way that businesses or, or the number of businesses that would adopt it. Um, is that something that you would see? I mean, well, how different is the cell now versus what it was pre-COVID? Because the conversations obviously would be drastically different. It's not through sort of necessity um, as it is now, but um, how would you have sort of positioned the, the platform pre-COVID? Yeah, there are, there are a number of factors at play here um, and you've touched on um, the majority of them. Pre-COVID, it was, it was a nice-have, not a must-have um, mm. for, for, for venues. I think even, and, and we talk about, I've talked about this a lot, that before COVID, the industry was, was very much on its knees in terms of profitability. It's, um, you know, if you're looking at, at industry statistics of, you know, 4% across the whole sector for, for profit, they were operating on very thin margins uh, anyway, different to, say, the US and other countries where you typically have that 20 or 30%. So that, that's been a real struggle uh, for, for hospitality owners. The other part of it is around knowing your customer and the data. Mm. And I think that next, that evolutionary step that a lot of other industries have had 
have been around knowing your customer and having access to data. And I think that's that's largely the conversation that we have now. It was there certainly before COVID. Um, but being able to, I mean, you know, it's, it's a personal thing running a hospitality business where, you know, people come into to your cafe to have a chat with the barista. Um, it's part of your morning routine and people place a lot of value in engaging with, with staff. So we, we see a play that we don't want, we don't see technology replacing those human interactions which are of high value. So it's how do we exist in or out of the venue that really enhances that that one-to-one experience you have with your favourite cafe or restaurant. Mm. Um, and then, I mean, the other part of it is, I mean, if you take a, a, another extreme to it, if, if, our, if our government were to make it even more onerous, I mean, this is a, a huge narrative that's been going on for a long time now, how complex our, um, our wages are, um, the awards mm. and everything behind it. I mean, if you, take, if you look at it another way, if they were to make that more onerous and even more expensive, what they're doing, they're, they are incentivising businesses to, to cut people's jobs. And that's where technology will come in. We, you know, we saw robotics in kitchens. Um, it, it's probably happened more slowly than what most people thought. But this is what will happen if, uh, and I think this is the right environment also, the government now, to hold jobs dear. And, you know, we, we want people employed. You know, I, I my friends grew up um, in hospitality businesses. There's a lot of life lessons to be learned, um, waiting tables. So we, we were, again, probably under that word of sustainability, um, we, we want to champion an industry that's thriving, that's colourful, it's not just, you know, full of dark kitchens and franchises where we take the personalities out of these businesses. We, we, we want to we wanna champion that. Yes, I did. So I packed it up and brought it back to the crib. Just a little something, show you how we live. Everybody want it, but it ain't that serious. Mm-hmm. That's that shit. So if you gon' do it, do it just like this. I think the um, I only I'm a, a convert um, when it comes to this kind of technology. To be brutally honest, I mean when it when it when it first became um, or first came to prominence, uh, being a hospitality person traditionally, I was very against it because I thought it removed the human element of the service environment. But um, recently, having experienced it, I actually found it it definitely improved it and this is not an attempt to to um pump up the tires of of the platform by any stretch of the imagination but um in terms of sitting at a table with friends and you're having a conversation or as it was i was in a a meeting with clients and we were sitting at a a pub actually and um so it was a good meeting but we, we we just had we had the ability to sit there and not break stride um tap a phone on a table and place an order and have it delivered um, to the table by someone who was very friendly and and you know retrospectively I, I, I thought about it. it it probably didn't replace a job um, having that functionality because someone still had to pour those drinks and someone still had to deliver them to the table so it's probably the still still the same number of staff involved in the transaction um, as would have been if I'd walked up to the bar and ordered it but for me as a guest I got to sit there and actually have um, a better experience as a result so um 
I guess has 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 that factored in, or what's how's the feedback or the perception around the technology shifted now that more people are kind of effectively forced to to use it? I definitely saw that and heard that. Um, there's uh, so we, we were open for what, four weeks here in Melbourne, um, May, whatever it was. Um, and I, um, I'll, I'll share one story. There's a really well-known publican here that runs a, a very uh, popular venue, and um, he probably like yourself. Um, he's been a publican for the best part of thirty years, hospitality purist, and um, he was. Although we saw the need to bring the technology into the business, he he was uh, he had his doubts, um, and that was really around. Um, the his staff engaging with the customers and whether whether the customers would actually like it and um i remember him saying to me two weeks in he he said i was wrong i was wrong on both sides my staff are still going out having just as many conversations if not more and i went around to the customers and um they all loved it and he's 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 converted and i've got you know many many stories like that um but there are still those hospitality purists who kind of see that it's a bit of a foreign invasion. You know, it's like a, it's that old thing that if you don't understand it, understand it, you will generally fear it. Um, so, and, you know, I mean, here in Melbourne we're about to open up again, hopefully in a couple of weeks. Um, and I think that, you know, it will be... Uh, you know, much largely adapted because I think also consumers want the whole contactless experience. Um, but for those that want to also just, you know, you know, give their their order to a waiter, they're also free to do that. And if that's the experience that they're after, then absolutely. Mark, you touched on it before, but in terms of like what you're describing really is, uh, all I think is is how technology can be used positively to transform a business in a sector. Um, are there other things that you're looking at uh, or aware of or trends in the market uh, that may not necessarily be in in exactly the same thing that you're doing but other, other rooms for innovation? Yeah, I was reading something just yesterday, um, a product in the US, which I thought, wow, that is, that's, that's pretty cool. And that was around voice recognition and uh, inventory ordering. Um, I, I think we're going to see an explosion of innovations um, over the next couple of years, and um, I'm really excited by that. I think that I think that you know technology, when used for good, it enriches people's lives. Um, and, and really, we, we this industry pre-COVID, but now more than ever, needs to get back to profitability. So. You know, I will always champion, I will always talk about technologies and innovations. Um, I will spruik them uh, from the highest mountaintop if it's to, to help people. That's what I love to do. It's part of the reason why we, we, we ventured down the path of, of Hungry Hungry was to really try and champion people. So uh, to answer your question, um, other innovations, um, probably apart from that one there, the last few months I've just been very probably all consumed in my uh, Hungry Hungry bubble. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Well, the reason I'm asking it is, as you touched on, because the the sector, um, you know, you mentioned four percent margin, and it's like, you know, the well, it was um, 
you to go through some sort of transformation had to at some point and it's been precipitated by the pandemic but on the other side of it it's like well we're going to be in an economic recession um for a bit which is um you know inevitable even though um the federal government's sort of hoping to pull out all the stops and nearly dump a trillion or whatever it is (laughs) a large number but but i i guess that the thinking has got to be a little bit about the Australian hospitality sector, its ability to to innovate. Because uh, in the last couple of interviews, we've had um, Stu Gregor from Four Pillars on, and you know, um, and and as a brand, Four Pillars is uh, I guess globally recognised now as essentially an Australian hospitality export. And so I guess uh, Australia. Uh, uh, and other territories are well positioned in this space fundamentally to innovate in hospitality specifically and 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 potentially serve up new models to a, a global market uh, which has you, you know some of the same challenges as we've had here in terms of establishing sustainability and profitability so I, I guess um yeah that's why that's where that question was coming from yeah I, I think you you hit it. Um, on the head earlier where you touched on our policy makers. Um, you, you need to create an environment for this. And, and people often, I think, forget about the whole supply chain that backends the, you know, the plate that you get served in a restaurant. And, um, I mean, it's becoming a huge industry. And I think it's one that we need to really think about carefully. And and I, I, I do, you know, I... I hope that our our policymakers will continue to to really cherish and and foster that to create that environment for that for that innovation because it's I mean it's something that I mean if you have a look at travel and tourism which for many countries is one of their top um, uh, earners you know we are so well positioned to be that you know that food destination of the world um, we're, we're held in very high regard our our beef our our uh, fresh produce. Um, and, and I'm also seeing actually, um, I've got family at, actually in, in Gippsland, so I can probably talk to that, that they've probably lacked innovation. They live on the farms, they grow beans and corn, and um, their efficiency and yield is, is way, way down from um, countries like the Netherlands. And I know that there actually has been some, um, some government grants and some spending that to send people over from the Gippsland area over to Europe and have a look at how some of these companies um, and innovations are transforming um, yield crops, um, you know, not using harsh chemicals that's ruining the soil, etc., etc. And I think there's just now a, a deep knowledge and fascination by consumers um, in and around food. So it's a, it's a much wider conversation, but really it's, it's that back end is what underpins restaurants, cafes and bars. I think, Mike, you would have seen it maybe as well in conversations you had in Singapore where we obviously both spent a bit of time. Um, their, their government, if we talk about a sustainability topic, is probably the world leader when it comes to investment into the hospitality and leisure sector to drive efficiency that will support sustainability across people, supply chains. Um, you know, some of the tech startups that were coming out there, whether they were related to the ordering um, systems from a venue perspective or from a distributor perspective, 
um, you know, ordering technology within their market. Mark, I'm not sure if you, you've seen much of, of what's going on over there, but it is, it's almost, I, I believe it is actually government mandated across Singapore that they want um, technology to replace the ordering system within every hospitality venue or near every hospitality venue. Um to drive down reliance on international labour. So that's not necessarily a huge um, focus for them from a sustainability topic, but um, population control and driving jobs to local residents is really fueling their desire to have technology within the ordering process. So, um, you know, that is a specific market. Um, will we'll drive a lot of inf- innovation, but I think hospitality is probably an innovation, uh, technologically innovation-starved star- sector is probably going to go through, um, you know, pretty significant change over the next two years um, across all all parts of sort of high manual labour um, functions in businesses. Yeah, and I mean, you know, we just interviewed uh, Paul, Paul Gaby, didn't we, um, with Eco Spirits, which is mm. it's a tech supply chain solution which uh, does good things for the planet and reduces the cost. Uh, of goods, so I, uh, yeah, it's um, I just it's just such a fascinating, fascinating topic. I think uh, at the moment because uh, as we come out the other side of this, uh, it's it's going to be hard, and people will be looking to I think um, uh, you know hang on to customers, which is where a product like Hungry Hungry uh, is different um, from what Mark's describing to uh, aggregators that interrupt that business-to-customer relationship and then also, uh, you know, eliminate eliminate unnecessary costs from, from businesses. Um, Mark, it's uh, we've touched on it a couple of times, but I, I want to just uh, take the opportunity to get your sense on uh, the mood in Melbourne now um, that, that there is, we hope, a light at the end of the tunnel. Um you know how? Uh, I mean, you'd be in touch with a lot of operators, uh, I imagine, just through virtue of your business and how important it's been to keeping, um, uh, I, I guess, businesses uh, in, in the hospitality sector trading during this period, albeit probably in a, a li- more limited form than they would otherwise enjoy. Um, but uh, what's your sense of things? Um, is it? Is there optimism? Is it? Um, is it sort of trepidation? Is it a mix of those things? It's definitely a mixture of a, of a lot of things at the moment. Um, what I will say is, these guys here who run these these businesses are bloody resilient, and you know, the harder that you push them, the harder they're going to push back. And I think a lot of them are just you know they're ready to explode. Um, that's mixed with, I think, also fatigue as well. I think, you know, I've had those conversations with people in their 50s and 60s who have been through other recessions who will say that they've been in much tougher economic environments. However, they've never had this level of sort of fatigue. Um, you know, I think it's over 200 days now that we've been locked up at home. And, you know, you know, whether people, you know, people got kids, uh, haven't been able to see loved ones, um, whatever it might be, it's it's played a very heavy toll, I think, on on people, largely speaking. But this industry is one that it it will it will fight back. It's it's probably forced those that 
have been stuck in older ways to think about their business and the future. And I think equally as exciting is the um, the the newcomers that we're going to see into this industry, the innovators. Um, I was talking um, with someone very well known in the scene last week in his late 20s and, um, you know, there's a lot of people that in his groups that, uh, you know, they're, they're really excited about, you know, they're looking forward to next year now. Um, you know, for, for, you know, the, the, the damage has been done. You know, whether we open up today, next week or next month, it doesn't really make much of a difference, I think, now to Melburnians. Um, obviously, the sooner, the better, but a lot of businesses have just been laying dormant. I think what everyone's hoping for now is that we get that support from government, um, from our mayor, from the City of Melbourne, that we create an environment for, for things to flourish. So things like, you know, bringing back the, you know, uh, removing FBT uh, from, from, from meals, you know, just one or two of these things I think can, can get us back into a position of where we were and catapult forward. And, again, it's really about creating an environment for these businesses to be able to flourish and, and, and be profitable. I don't want to paint too, sorry, yeah. too much of a doom and gloom um, aspect on, on the conversation because obviously Melbourne is and Victoria is where it is um, and it's, it's horrible. But um, some of the numbers that I'm hearing coming out of um, – and, and sorry – I'll preface this. There is no way of telling exactly what's going to happen, but I think the level of attrition that that is being forecast in Melbourne is pretty scary. Like the number of sort of forty percent of hospitality businesses not being there when it comes to the end of sort of JobKeeper, um, I've heard that bandied about from a number of different um, people. Uh, that, that that's going to place a significant um, toll on on I guess the cultural fabric of that city. Um, how do you see patrons responding to that um, coming out of out of lockdown? Are you, are you sensing that there's just a, I would assume there is a, a distinct eagerness to get back out um, to support venues and to sort of just see the industry come back alive again. Is, is, is that kind of palpable in the market at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm often on, on Instagram and I see a lot of the conversations between um, devoted customers and business owners and the amount of support around them. I've seen the support with people lined up around the corner to pick up meals, supporting them online. You know, I, I think that there's, you know, there's 5 million people behind these business owners. They want them to win. Uh, I've, you know, I've got friends that, you know, wouldn't probably rather than buying fifty dollars a pizza, spending one hundred and fifty dollars with um, Mr Miyagi uh, this weekend um, to have a bit of a, a Mr Miyagi experience uh, from home. So, look, is it is it eerie and sad to drive up uh, the streets of Melbourne and see uh, shop after shop for lease? Yeah, it is. You know, you have to be honest. Like, who wants to see that stuff? But it, it's just, it is a grim reality that we're in right now, which is why I say that this is now up to our, our government and we have, to, uh, we have to have a level of, of, of hope and trust in them to, to make a rebound back from what is, you know, it, it, it is a dire situation. Unfortunately, a lot of people won't make it through it. But we have to look to the future and we have to look at what can we do going forward, not what's happened in the past. 
Um, I had one quick one, which is uh, I can't help but notice that there's a nightmare on approach if uh, Sally Cap gets re-elected. Uh, have you got any views on that? Oh, I try, I try to <laughs> not get political with these things. Um, I've got my own my own personal thoughts and, and feelings with the way that our premiers handle this situation and setting us almost up for failure. Um, we're on the dawn of October 19 and, yeah, wow. <laughs> I'll, I'll reserve my own uh, comments around that. Yeah, fair, fair. But, uh, but so I, I will say that, you know, there's a lot of venues in, in the suburbs that are, um, that are doing a, a roaring trade out of this. And, you know, you look at the future of work, um, will people be going back into the city five days a week? It, it's, it's unlikely. Um, people are going to want experiences they would have otherwise had along the Yarra 20 kilometres east of the city. So I see a spread um, through the suburbs of people like, you know, Scott Pickett at Estelle, um, some of the things that, you know, that he's been doing um, and looking to do. Um, so it, it's going to be interesting, um, you know, the... A restaurant in the city might look different. It, it might be businesses opened sort of Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday um, and closed for three days. Um, they might have a, a satellite um, co-share space in Balaclava where weekday lunches they're delivering out. And, and, and it's going to be technology that, that, that drives these new, this new industry um, that I think uh, that I'm, I'm also very excited and, and, and passionate about. Oh yeah, well, I think it's uh, all I can do is encourage you to remain. So, to be fair, I mean the uh, it's inspiring hearing you speak about these types of ideas. And one of the ambitions Luke and I have is to just use this podcast to try and share some of this thinking. Uh, the CBDs of both Sydney and Melbourne are um, are in for um, challenging times ahead. Uh, in Sydney, the government's committed to spending twenty million dollars just on the CBD for summer to try to get um, people back into it um, for that very reason. Uh, and, and uh, you know, um, I, I think Sydney CBD actually is probably going to be more challenging than Melbourne in a sense because we're not used to using the CBD as much um, um, for weekend mm. leisure uh, um, mm. and after hours as Melbourne is, uh, you know, it's sort of quite central to city celebration of events and festivals. So hopefully we can, you know, <laughs> in time see those return uh, to Melbourne. But um, those types of ideas, Mark, are great. I think um, one of the challenges is, uh, and, and you see this almost in every conversation, is uh, people have, it's comfortable to go back to what you know, um, but and it's more difficult to reimagine a future, isn't it? And, and so mm. those types of ideas of three days of trade in the CBD uh, with you know, and then servicing the suburbs during the the week, <laughs> you know, uh, like a I think to me are um, are ideas that um, you know probably have benefit to hopefully some of the people listening uh, to this podcast and and also for the supply chain. One of the challenges is that supply chain is also clustered around the CBDs because that's where the population has been, and uh, you know, with a dispersed audience, um, you know, sort of has implications beyond um, just the, you know, the, the, the venues themselves, I suppose.
So, Mark, your website states clearly, manager Muller, no bros from San Fran taking hard-earned dough, no locking contracts, no unreasonable fees, manage your own pricing, delivery fees, surcharges and more. Did you pen this yourself? And if so, why? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and you're not the first person to hit me up on um, on that on that uh, statement on our website. Um, I think for us and why we set out on this journey, it was to support the industry uh, that we so dearly love. You know, we've made lifelong friends in the industry and, you know, people that I, I consider like family to me. So so for us, it's, um, it's, it's, it's something a lot deeper. Um, and what COVID has pushed forward uh, into, the, into the market is, is a, more of a general awareness um, to the general public around the, the high cost of running these businesses and also uh, what these foreign-owned aggregators have actually done and negatively in many respects, not always, impacted the businesses and created this unsustainable environment. So, um, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's much spoken about now that, you know, there's a huge pressure from, from restaurant owners uh, and, and the public have forced the likes of um, Uber Eats to, you know, to lower some of their fees from 35 to 30%. I mean, I still feel this is too high for, for restaurants and it makes no sense to keep losing money on every order. Um, you know, if, if it continues, our favourite restaurants will, will, will soon disappear. So this then, you know, this for us it became uh, a question, is the technology and the data being used for good? Um, so, yeah, so coming back to us and and what we're building, you know, we firmly believe that everything we do needs to be within a win-win for business owners and the general public. Otherwise, we're, we're part of the problem and 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 not not part of the solution. When you say that, so, I mean, there's really been a, I suppose you and others are helping level the playing field, I think. Like, the, I guess maybe it's, as an outsider describing it this way, maybe uh, Uber Eats Delivery kind of created the consumer behaviour um, and now... Uh, which which is li- largely was automated then you know that's how like that that type of thinking works mass market awareness here's a here's a product press this the product comes but no thought required in a sense now what you're describing is a, a change of consumer awareness where people are going hang on a sec I know that this is not necessarily the best thing um, for something I care about so what's an alternative like how how level uh, how, how level will the playing field become do you think well, first of all, I think what we've done is we've given um, business owners the tools to be able to to fight back. So it's it's technology that actually has the interests of their business, and we you know we are heavily investing in the product to build more features that that help support them. So we really see ourselves as a, as a as an ally to almost a custodian of the industry in some respects that we want to see it thrive. And again, I, I refer back to that that word of profitability, which in other countries is celebrated, but, you know, here in Australia it's still, it, there's a bit of, it's still a bit of a taboo around using that word profitability, um, which I, I think doesn't help anyone. Um, but, I mean, the other part about the kind of the, the awareness, um, you know, I, uh, I'll, I'll share a story. Um, you know, at 35%, what, what does that mean? 
Um, one of one of my very long customers has got a, a Topolino's in St Kilda. Um, he had a customer order some pizzas for his staff across the road at St Kilda Bowls, and it was a two hundred dollar pizza order. And um, he he very kindly uh, called called the gentleman and um, and asked nicely if he would consider buying putting the order directly through him, and he would you know add in a couple of extra items. And he explained how that was, you know, seventy dollars, you know, lost out of the transaction. So he's, you know, he's not making, he's not making any money on that. And the guy um, said, "Nah, look, I'm in my office. Mm, no, nah, I'll just keep it as it is." Now, not judging the guy, but you know, what does seventy dollars do in a two hundred dollar order? Um, it's it, just, it doesn't add up. It doesn't matter. And, and, and we know why we have to have to charge them is because, you know, when someone orders up for an $8 item and they get shipped, uh, you know, up the road, um, Uber Eats and the likes, uh, they, they, they lose money on those transactions. So they really need to pick it up on those um, $100 orders. The reality is for restaurants, it's 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 an imbalance. Um, and, They've, and a lot of them, you know, just will jump on these platforms out of fear. Um, there's a lot of fear that drives them because they see their competitors on it, so they feel like they need to be on it. Now, I should also say I know some businesses that have done very well um, off the likes of uh, Uber Eats, so I'm, I'm, I'm not one to just kind of just bash them as, as pure evil. Um, you know, I think what they've done and the innovation, that they, and the, the, the change in consumers' behaviours, I, I, I think, is, um, is, is a wonderful thing. But I'll, I'll always keep coming back down to the sustainability um, of this industry to flourish and and really get behind the it's, it's small businesses, uh, it's individuals that drive the diversity and makes this industry really special. It's not the franchises, it's not the big global players, it's the individuals. It's it's the person who came here from around twenty years ago. Um, with nothing in their hands other than a backpack or I'm of a Italian Australian background you know my grandfather came in the early 50s and there were a lot of Italians that set the scene for the Italo Australian dining space so you know the likes of the Cafe Cucinas, the Ronnie D'Astasio's um, you know a lot of people won't know that a lot of the people that we talk about all worked under probably half a dozen different people from the Philippe Michel's to the um, uh, Katarina in, in, in the city here in Melbourne. I mean, these are people who really built this industry to what it is today. And it's, it's exciting, it's vibrant. We all love it because it's made up of mostly small businesses. Um, so in, in terms of your business specifically, uh, and we talked about the acceleration of it during the pandemic and adding to that the levelling of the playing field and consumer awareness around, uh, I guess, business sustainability and, and supporting local, all, all these things are converging. Um, the slight awkwardness of it is uh, um, that people might look at your business and say you've grown, I think you're saying, from 15 to 50 star staff pretty quickly uh, and you're in growth mode as a result of the pandemic and and you're, you're, you're winning, you're killing it, you know, like it's a sort of awkward thing for me to ask, but like, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you're minting it or, or, or lining up the Ferraris downstairs just yet, but like, <laughs> you know, like, what, like, like, is it, 
because I think that we're seeing up here as well, people, there's some people who are doing quite well um, and then there's also people who aren't and it's just a bit of an awkward moment, I think. Um, how Are you sensing that around you uh, in terms of your interactions with people? And if so, how do you manage that? Yeah, I'll first speak to other businesses that are doing really well out of this and I think everyone has a sense of community and very cognizant of the fact that there's just a lot of hardship around. Um, certainly no one's gloating about doing it well at the moment, not, not that I've encountered, and I wouldn't be thinking too highly of that person if I did encounter um, one. Um, and I know there's some other brands who are doing exceptionally well who are going completely under the radar to not flaunt that, and I think that's very admirable. Um, Personally speaking, for me, I I still have an awkwardness and I, I kind of have mixed emotions myself that especially at the start um, in March and April when, you know, sales for our platform were just skyrocketing and there was, you know, I likened it to kind of, you know, stepping into a battlefield and looking for for the, you know, the, the, the breathing still and whoever we found breathing, we say, can we help you? We'll do this for free. Um, we just want to help you guys. So for me, uh, I consider myself to be a you know, very humble person and, you know, I, I, I didn't start this business uh, to become a billionaire. Um, I, I, what drove me and what drives me still to this day is, is helping people. That's what I love doing. That's what I get the most satisfaction from. Um, and... You know, people have said to me when I've had some of these conversations, you know, Mark, have a look at the good that you're doing around, and um, and that, and and that's and that's what I, I turn to. I, I know what we what we what we're doing is good. I know the people that we employ and bring in our team, they're good people, and they all they all share a common passion, and that is that we want to see this industry flourish again. Yeah, and I, I think the um, observation I'd have too is that you know, just watching you through other interviews and other things is that, um, and I don't want to pop up the ties too much, but, you, you know, you've had to, you would have had the business challenge of scaling a business during this time. I like it. It's, it's not easy. <laughs> like doing business. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, having to scale it to just, you know, with both the, um, the need for the product um, to, to kind of keep businesses, you know, um, ticking over or, or, or having some revenue come in uh, through takeaway and delivery um, during this time um, must, mustn't have been an easy challenge. You must be, be doing some tech speaking uh, uh, entrepreneur, entrepreneurial conferences on that, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a funny thing because, I mean, I'm personally, I've sacrificed, you know, a lot of family time. I've got two young boys and, you know, I've pretty much wiped out this year. Even though I've been working from home, I'm more distant from my family than I ever have been in these six, seven months, even though I've largely been working from home. It's, it's, a, it's a bit of a, a, a weird one, that. Yeah, and then on top of it, you've got, a, you've got the greyhound chasing you in the office. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we should be, uh, well, I think it's a good, good time to jump into those um, final questions and, and learn a little bit more about yourself personally, Mark. So I'll just jump straight in if you're good to go. Um, First one is um, favourite book or podcast. So favourite book that you've read recently or podcast that you listen to um, religiously 
or the one that you're always recommending when someone asks you? Where, where, where would that land for you? Book, I've nearly finished The Power of Vulnerability by Brene Brown. Mm-hmm. And I watched her TED Talk and um, that inspired me and it's a fantastic book. Yeah. Highly recommend it. Um, vulnerability has been spoken about more than ever uh, before and I think it's a, re- a really important topic um, to share. Uh, podcast, um, I do like uh, Tim Ferriss. Um and pre-COVID, not so much these days, and I have to look to my phone because I've forgotten uh, it, is um, I, I am a, uh, a kind of a health food junkie, you could say. Um, <laughs> I, 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 um, I'm into kind of um, food. I, I, I prescribe to food is medicine. Um, yeah. And the one I'm thinking of is Bulletproof Radio with uh, Dave Asprey. Right. Okay, good recommendations. Um, Fab, uh, have you got a favourite album or artist that you're listening to right now? Um, right now, music's taken a bit of a backward. It's, I'm just, it's really podcasts and meditation and rest. And you know what? Background music I have over the last few weeks, I couldn't even tell you. I know the genres, but I couldn't even tell you an artist or, or a name, but just some really soothing, calm background music is in dire need amongst all of the noise. Uh, What's well, your favourite album of all time? What's the number one? You've got to have a number one album. I'm, I'm not going to let you get away with not, with not mentioning it. something. Uh, I, I grew up and I still love the likes of Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Um. Dare I say, Bon Jovi and some of the '80s rock in there as well. I've I've always been into mixed genres. I've never really had a group or an album um, per se, but um, I, I would still whack on a a, a Led Zeppelin um, few tracks uh, in the background. Nothing wrong with that at all. Especially trying to do a bit of them as well, trying to get the blood pumping. <laughs> you, if you're not listening to much music. I don't know if you're getting much time to sit around and have a few drinks, but if you do, what are you drinking? Easy. Negroni. <laughs> Too many of them. <laughs> right. Where would you order one from? Where's the best Negroni in Melbourne? I've had some spectacular Negronis. I would say uh, Bar Liberty, one of my mm-hmm. favourites in Fitzroy. Um, I also had a spectacular one at Anchovy, which is a small little um, modern Australian Vietnamese uh, inspired restaurant in Bridge Road, Richmond. And the Negroni that I had there before my meal was was memorable. Mm. Get some really very very good wraps at that restaurant. Ah, uh, yeah, great great mm. place. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Okay, favourite venue right now. When everything is open up, could be in Victoria. I mean, you're not getting on an international plane, so let's keep it local and pump up someone in Victoria. What is the first venue of any description that you're going to? You can't ask me this question. I just, I just <laughs> did. So many. Um, my first one would, I think it always goes to Supernormal. Yeah, same. That would I'm be my number one as well. Love it, love it. But I have to say, outside of Melbourne, 
this is my absolute favourite and I haven't been had a chance to get back to Brisbane for a very long time, but I reckon Gerard's Bistro in Brisbane is one of the – I love uh, Middle Eastern-inspired food as well, but I've been there, I reckon, five times. Like, you know, when you, you go to a restaurant many times and it's kind of like, you know, it can be a bit off or sometimes you don't quite hit the high on the second time, often yeah. in the case. Whereas I reckon that's the one restaurant where I've been to five times and every time I walk away and I go, wow. Have you been – we actually placed the new executive chef, um, Adam Wolf, who's up there last year. Have you been up there since he's taken over? No, no, I haven't, right. but I'm dying to and – I've got a few trips planned once we can get back on planes. <laughs> and that'll be the first place I go to when I'm back in Brisbane, that's for sure. Nice. Good shout-out. I'm sure they'll be happy with that. And um, finally, who in the industry um, are you most inspired by? Right now, right here, right now in Melbourne, Chris Lucas is inspiring me that he's not shutting up. And he's standing up for he's, – he's becoming a voice to say what a lot of people I think are maybe fearing saying or not really committed to rallying around the industry. Um, I think he's been kind of relentless in his approach and I think that we, we, we need to be relentless because so far what we've seen – hasn't been kind to the industry. It's been kind to other industries and I don't want to touch on unions or other political things like that, but I think that this industry has been one that just it's, it's too easily kicked around. Um, but I think there's and, – and there are others as well, but um, Chris Lucas is the first one that comes to mind in terms of just fighting back and saying, guys, give us a go. We're doing all the right things. Um, you're not giving us a fair go or an opportunity here. Cool. All solid answers. Um, Mark, it's been a um, real pleasure talking to you. And uh, as I said at the beginning, we haven't had uh, guests uh, on this podcast out of, um, uh, you know, with your background before. And uh, one of my takeaways, I reckon, is that we uh, this is something we'll, we'd, you know, we'll, I'm sure will inspire Luke and me to uh, hunt down and look for other stories of innovation and reinvention because um, it's a great industry. We all love it. And, um and uh, everyone loves a comeback. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can't wait to see it. Twenty twenty one is going to be a, a, a great year. Good chat with Mark. What were your uh, key takeaways from the conversation? Oh, look, I don't know that this is an appropriate thing to say, but I, I suppose like it's, you know, so there's been so many examples of people losing jobs in this pandemic. And I guess that at least one thing is that there's a business in the sector, a related sector that's, you know, having to grow during this time. And, and, uh, and I guess job creation is like essentially you know, such an imperative for the economy. And and um, obviously people aren't necessarily going to switch from hospitality one minute to technology the next, but I guess like, uh, you know, the um, opportunities to look for related uh, jobs in, sorry, jobs in related sectors is, is, is one thing that people might be needing to think about right at the moment. What about you? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, mate, it's an interesting point. I mean, the, the, the jobs topic within hospitality at the moment is extremely, um, I guess, important, not necessarily from a loss of jobs perspective, but from an availability of people. Um, you know, his technology platform is one that will and has, you know, probably one of the arguments that would have made prior to um, COVID was that it could reduce your wage costs. Um, now it really, I think, if it could do anything, it could reduce the reliance upon casual labour. Um, there's been so much press uh, of late, even um, just on the weekend, going in good food. Um, and it's just anecdotally from businesses that I speak to, um, some businesses cannot staff their venues at all. You know, the talent that we used to have uh, with um, backpackers that would traditionally be arriving into the country around this time. Students um, are as well. 100%. Um, it's just not there. Like, the the shortfall that I think we are going to see in venues is going to be astronomical. Um, we In the last week, I met with uh, the two largest premium hospitality operators in New South Wales. Well, um, names. <laughs> correct. Uh, both heads of people for both of those businesses. And the challenge that they face right now is incredible um so they both use systems um like this uh that i think will uh, will serve to help reduce that impact but i guess for anyone listening I, I get called probably once or twice a day from operators in different states just wondering how other businesses in different states are handling it um and and these kind of technology technology platforms with a reordering at table or other examples um, are really going to be integral, I think, in navigating the next period that we that is only just unfolding. We're not even really at the silly season yet. So if you imagine the venues that have gone up in trade maybe twenty percent over the last month, they're probably going to double again, even though they can't do events. It's a pretty scary proposition. So if I didn't have, and this is not a sell for Mark. But if I didn't have an ordering platform in my venue and I was starting to get busy, I would be putting one in <laughs> within <laughs> within uh, days, basically. Yeah. yeah. Imagine the application of work from home. I might put one in, in my upstairs attic and see how my wife is. <laughs> Where would you be ordering from? <laughs> Downstairs. Downstairs. Uh, on black. Oh, right. <laughs> well, you might just get it from the pub. Uh, the welcome to be running over a couple of beers. Yeah. Yeah. Be good use of Liam's time. And, uh, mate, Melbourne reopening, have you got um, – how's the launch for Check, Check, Check going down there? Oh, look, yeah, we're just reworking it at the moment. It's gone pretty well up here uh, in terms of the media side of things. I mean, uh, we couldn't have asked for a better launch, to be honest. Um, got got a bit lucky on the news cycle. It was before uh, Gladys and, and – um, and her fella kind of came into scrutiny. But um, so it's gone very well up here and we're very keen to get it up down in Victoria. But just one of the things, hey, like, you know, how do you shoot that in Victoria at the moment? Like it's one of these things. So we're kind of having to just look at some of the uh, creative that we've got and think through mask usage and, uh, you know, the logistics of having to, to get that reworked for um, for Victoria because we'd love to have it in market um, in first week of November. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, what I'm going to go and try and sort out now. Nice. We'll uh, make chat to you soon, no doubt. 